We're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and Emily now is going to come and read God's Word for us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's help. Father, would you now take this word, your word, and would you use it to massage our hearts, to make our hearts, while they may be hard as stones, would you make them soft as putty? And would you change us, we pray, by the work of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, there is no sermon that is as famous as this sermon in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. There's no sermon that is as famous as this sermon, but there's also no sermon, arguably, that is as misunderstood as the Sermon on the Mount. Why did Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount? Some people think that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to be like a hammer blow for the Jews and his disciples, for them to be able to get their life into conformity with what God wants so that he would look at them, see their good works, and reward them with his righteousness. Some believe that the Sermon on the Mount was preached to be a future vision of what it would be like one day, someday, but not now, lest you try to fulfill the Sermon on the Mount and just find yourself wholly disappointed. Why did Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount? We believe Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount because it is the clearest picture we have in Scripture to show us as Christians how we are to live in the world now. One commentator, John Stott, said it like this, there is nothing that so leads to the gospel and grace as the Sermon on the Mount. Nothing that leads to the gospel and to grace as this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So, that's true. Let's look at it, shall we? If you lower your eyes to the text, I hope you have it before you. Look with me at verse 1. In Matthew 5, verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now, why would Matthew include that little detail? Up on the mountain. What was the point of a mountain? What were the mountains used for when Jesus lived? Well, the same thing that they were, they've always been used for. They're places to go and hide. The mountains were always a place where the outlaws went. 
There were always a place where those who were being hunted went and hid. You think of Tora Bora. You think of famous mountains in the past that people have gone to hide out in. Here Jesus, Matthew wants us to know very intentionally, goes up on a mountain. Just a generation before this, perhaps even the generation to whom Matthew is writing, King Herod the Great smoked out an outlaw out of the mountains. It was part of the whole Maccabean revolt in the inter intertestamental period. And King Herod went into the mountains to bring all of the dissenters out and to kill them all. And Herod thought the only way that I can really do that is if I marry one of their daughters and mix the blood. And he did. And then he had every intention to take the last outlaw who was on the run against his kingdom and to drown him in his palace in Jericho. That was the plan. And here, one generation later, is Jesus standing on the mountain preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because he's an outlaw. <laughs> That's where outlaws go. And Jesus was an outlaw because he was totally revolutionary in the way that he understood life. Jesus had a completely new system. He had new strategies. And he had a whole new set of results if you followed what he was trying to teach you in the Sermon on the Mount. Any college football fans here? Yes, thank you, thank you, yes. So you know how when a coach takes over a program, right, he institutes a whole new system, doesn't he? And so the new coach will say things like, well, the old coach really wasn't into strength and conditioning, but I am. With a new kingdom comes a totally new set of values. Or the coach has all the power. He has a new strategy. Listen, if you practice like this, if you work hard, if you practice as hard as you play, then you're going to get in the game. Otherwise, you're going to ride the bench. He has an entirely new strategy. He also has a new set of results. Either the program is successful, you win games, or it's not successful, you lose. Either those freshmen that come in at a buck 85 become 215 and can run faster, or they don't. Either you take the three stars and make them excellent, or you don't. Listen, Jesus comes to proclaim the kingdom on this mountain as an outlaw, on the run, preaching to the crowds because his system, his strategies, and his set of results are completely different than anything they'd ever heard. So let's look at those three things. A new system, a new strategy, and a new set of results. First, the new system. The contours of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount Harken back, beginning with the very first word to the Old Testament. You remember what Harlan read for our Old Testament reading was, blessed is the man who walks not of the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of mockers. Blessed is he. It was a beatitude. And here Jesus stands as the great, greater prophet proclaiming a new set of beatitudes he goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, where at the end of the Pentateuch, Moses sets out very clearly, God sets out through Moses, the blessings for obedience in the covenant among the covenant people and the curses for disobedience. Here Jesus stands as the new and greater Moses to proclaim to us new blessings in the light of his kingdom. And the funny thing about the system of Jesus is this, that when you begin to read through the Beatitudes, you recognize very quickly that you're either in one kingdom or the other. Like you're either in the old kingdom or you're in the new kingdom. 
Paul says, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, he says that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You're either in the domain of darkness or you're in the kingdom of his beloved son. There's only one of two options. Or similarly, Paul says in Romans, for the night is gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You know what it's like when you're up early in the morning and it's not yet day, but it's also not night. The dawn is breaking in. You're putting off the old deeds and you're preparing for the day. You're not in, you don't put your pajamas on. No, you put your work clothes on. You take a shower, hopefully most of us. You get ready. That's the same way it is with the Christian life. And Paul is saying, listen, the dawn has come for you, people of Owasso, Tulsa, Bartlesville, Grove. He's come for you. Are you dressed and ready for the day at hand? Yes, the sun hasn't fully risen, but it's no longer night for you. Who are you? So the new system, Jesus hearkens back to the Old Testament and he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger. Now what's odd about each of those? They are utterly and completely opposite of what the world tells you is successful, aren't they? Notice what Jesus is trying to say. He's saying, listen, if you're going to be part of my kingdom, then you need to start having values that are completely flipped upside down. Notice what the world's values are. Jesus just comes at him and says, look, here are the world's values. Look, verse 3, the poor in spirit. What's the world's value that competes with that? It's competence. I'm not poor in spirit. I've got it all together. Or verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, what's the opposite? Well, comfort. I don't need to mourn. I've got a new iPad. Have you seen it? It's awesome. Or verse 5. Blessed are the meek. Well, the meek are people who are totally out of control. Jesus says, listen, the world values control, but I'm telling you, I value those of you who admit you're not in control. Or verse six, immediate gratification. Or verse seven, the merciful. Jesus says, I value mercy, but the world values merit and performance. Or verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus is saying, listen, the world values selfish ambition. If you need to throw somebody under the bus at work to get that promotion, do it. But Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. The world wants arrogance. They want success. They want to win at all costs. In verse 10, Blessed are those who persecute, who are persecuted for righteousness sake. In this world, and I am so susceptible to this on Facebook and everything else, we try to negotiate our reputation in public. We are fierce about our reputation management. In fact, there are firms, you've heard about them, I'm sure, that you can hire to help you maintain your reputation on all of the social media sites. Jesus is saying to these disciples and to the crowds on this mountain as an outlaw, Everything the world values, I 
and turning it on its head. The world values competence. Listen, they're the ones who don't need to admit God's help. The second group he's concerned about are those with material comfort. They're not sad, they're well-fed. The third group Jesus is going after are those who fight for control. They use their energy and their power to maintain control at every turn. The fourth group values immediate gratification. Like they want satisfaction in this world right now. And preacher, you have about five minutes because you're losing me. I want to be pleased now. The fifth group is the meritocracy. They don't need mercy. They don't value mercy. Fish or cut bait, bro. Oh, they will, Jesus says. The sixth value of the old kingdom is selfish ambition. We don't care about purity. We don't care about integrity. I want him. I want her. And I'll do whatever I can. Doesn't matter that I'm married. I want him. It's a world val world's values. The seventh is arrogance. Listen, I must win the prize no matter what. And so on and so forth. You could go all the way through these nine Beatitudes. Jesus' point is this. There are two kingdoms. I'm here to implement a new system. Either you are part of my system, part of the new kingdom of light, or you're part of the old kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. In which are you? Jesus isn't asking about your theology or how, how many systematic theologies you've read. He's asking about your life. In which are you? Listen, non-Christians all over this town have a very strong opinion about Christians. Do you know that? Do you know any non-Christians? Have you ever talked to them? You should know a lot. And they have very strong opinions about Christians. And let me tell you, their strong opinions about Christians often are not the nine characteristics that we just read. Why is that? Maybe it's because though we are children of light, we look like children of darkness. Maybe it's because we go to parties with people and yes, we can enjoy a nice glass of wine sometime, but maybe you can't. Maybe you can't because you do not know how to enjoy the freedom that Christ gives us. You get mastered by it. Maybe, maybe, yes, we have total freedom to let out our anger and be able to be honest before the Lord, but maybe you have a problem of the language that you say is just not helpful. And maybe you want to talk like that because it's cool, but maybe it's, maybe it's closer to the kingdom of darkness than it is the kingdom of light. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is with you. I don't know some of you. But in which kingdom are you? What do you conclude in the old system? The old system patterned itself out of the old world. The meritocracy of every other religion. Every other religion says, listen, they all have a leader and you follow that leader's precepts, you follow that leader's pathway and God will reward you by your merit. But here we have the greatest news in all the world, the message of grace. 
that God gives you what you can never earn, that he sent his only son to earth to die for you, to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death that you deserve to die. And he rose again on the third day so that his, in his rising, you find your life. And he intercedes at the right hand of God the Father right now for you. It's all about what Jesus has done for you. And yet we live as though we still earn our salvation. And we fall back into the same patterns of the old system again and again and again. What does the reversal of values look like for Trinity Presbyterian Church or for whatever church you may happen to go to? Tulsa lost 10,000 jobs so far this year. Did you know that? 10 thousand pink slips. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's say that you, your name was on the block. You were going to get, and some of you, frankly, are, it, it's, a, it's a scary time for you. And you have the opportunity to save your job if you lie. Will you? It's your job. Like you, you almost worship your job. Will you lie? Will you throw somebody else under the bus? Two different people, they can make two different decisions. One is of the kingdom of dark, light, one is of the kingdom of darkness. Which are you in? Jesus comes and he gives us a completely different system. You know the movie Inside Out that just came out? The whole movie Inside Out, right, the animated film, is about how to repress sadness. It's a fantastically accurate movie, psychologists tell us, with regard to human emotion. And the whole movie is about tamping down sadness. No, 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 don't be sad. Don't be sad. Here, here, here. No, no, don't be sad. Don't be sad. Here's a new puppy. Don't be sad. Don't be sad. Here's something... And the whole movie is about repressing sadness. And you know, I'll never forget when somebody, somebody was teaching me and told me that you know the two chief characteristics or values that Scripture gives to be tantamount in the Christian's life? One of them is thankfulness. Do you know what the other one is? Sadness. Because Christians are the only ones who are able to be both sad and yet deeply content because they're able to look at the world and recognize that there are sad things about the world. Things are sad. And it is okay. In fact, it is healthy at times to be sad and to not rush so quickly beyond that sadness. Jesus says you can be sad and yet deeply satisfied and content. Why? You can mourn. Why? Because I've come to bring a new system. What is that new system? Well, you have to see the new strategy. Systems need power. They need execution. When people create new systems, they have new strategies for how they're going to live that system out. Either it's a 4-3 defense, if you're a college football coach trying to implement a new defensive scheme, or for some people, it is a whole new way of approaching business. In Christianity, you find a whole new way of approaching God. Because all other religions will say, 
we basically have the same strategy. We're going to reshuffle the deck. We're going to put lipstick on the pig. We're going to paint the barn. It's the same old barn, same old pig, same old strategy. And the strategy is this. You are going to earn your way to heaven by being good and nice people. And the more ichthuses you have on the back of your car, all the better. But the gospel is that Jesus... Jesus didn't just say to people, listen, like, um, come follow my example, although he does. Jesus didn't just say, hey, disciples, come follow me, although he does say, follow me. In fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount continues through chapter 7. And then if you want to read Matthew this week in chapter 8, at verse 22, Jesus says very clearly, follow me. And then right after that, what does he do? Right after that, he heals the storm. He calms the storm. Right after that, he heals the garrison demoniac. Jesus is saying, listen, all the systems of the world say, follow my example. And I'm telling you, you need to follow my example. He's not saying if, ands, or buts about obedience to what he calls us to do. But he's saying why? Because the strategy by which you are able to follow my example is because I'm the one that calmed the storm. I'm the one that heals over the spiritual realm. I am the one who gave myself for you, who lived a perfect life you could not live and who died the death that you should have died. In Jesus' system, we're not looking to be powerful. We are looking to the one who is our power, Jesus. And when you believe in that gospel, when you connect to God through Jesus, you have the power and the courage to do very hard things, like be totally reckless with your life in the best of ways for the sake of the kingdom. Because it provides for you an utterly and completely new set of results. Completely new set of results. Like if you get a little extra money in your pocket, the world will say, well, listen, put it away for a rainy day. But as a Christian, you're able to be able to recklessly be generous to other people. Of course, of course, you're going to get taken advantage of at times. But you can be reckless. Why? Because Jesus is the one who provides for you. He is your source of security. Nothing else. We want this to say, blessed are the middle class in spirit. <laughs> That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, listen, blessed are the lukewarm who live in the suburbs and who love to go to church and think it's cool to go to a new church plant and want to tell people about it and it's fun. No, Jesus is saying, I want you to live your life as though you believe the gospel in every area of your life. From the way that you write checks or you swipe debit cards, sorry, old illusion, to the way that you raise your children. Do you do it under the banner of his love? Because he loves you. Jesus couldn't sing over you any louder than he already does. We sing in public worship because it's the picture of Jesus singing over his church. And we want you to sing and we want you to teach your kids to sing because it's a picture to everybody who hears your voice that Jesus is singing over you his love. There's a totally different set of results in the new kingdom because you are driven by something that is not of yourself. It is an alien righteousness that has come and that is yours. Listen, God does not force his kingdom, one commentator said, upon anybody. He doesn't force his kingdom upon anybody. 
but he gladly gives it to all who know they are losers without him and they humbly seek his help. Do you know that you are a loser without Jesus? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Friends, this is not a picture of you in the future, although it will be a perfect picture of you in the kingdom. This is intended to be a picture of you now. Invited into the new system of King Jesus that says, I'm the one who does the work for you. That says, when you come to this text, it does not wear you out because you read this text and you realize that Jesus, Jesus was poor in spirit. Jesus was mourned. You mourn because you've lost friends. Listen, Jesus lost all of his friends. The crowd mocked and ridiculed him and his father for whom he had been in perfect fellowship for all eternity turned his back on him. Oh, Jesus mourned. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Jesus was merciful when he could have let his white hot fury out on that cross over every one of those men who put nails in his hands and his feet. He was merciful in his restraint. Jesus is the pure in heart because we cannot be pure in our hearts. Jesus is the peacemaker bringing us and God together. Jesus was the one who was persecuted for righteousness's sake. Friends, we are to be people who live by a new system, by a new strategy, and we have a completely different set of results. And the new set of results show us that even though we can be given so much, we're able to give our lives away and sacrifice for the sake of this town, for the sake of our companies, for the sake of our families, for the sake of our friends. That is the life to which Jesus calls us right at the very beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. It is the place of outlaws. Are you an outlaw to the old kingdom? Are you part of his new one? Hmm? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to recognize that we follow an outlaw, your son, who was rejected by the world, though vindicated by your spirit, taken up into glory. And Father, we pray that you will help us as a people to be such a countercultural community for the sake of our town that people become utterly amazed and that those of us who have a hard time talking about our faith will have an increasingly easy time showing it by being reckless with the way we give our money, being reckless with the way we sacrifice for friends, being reckless in the way that we trust the Lord in the midst of our trials. And so, Father, help us now for those of us who have been living in the old kingdom to repent and run to your embrace for you sing over us your great love. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.